we're, we're uh, continuing our lessons in Christology, and uh, <clears throat> we want to now look at, uh, and I guess for a couple months now, we're going to look at the various implications of the life, death, resurrection, and the ascension of uh, Jesus Christ, okay? And um, we can look at many benefits, and, and I hope to do as, mon- as many as I can, uh, <clears throat> but one of the things we're going to look at is going to be uh, union with Christ. And I mean, this, that's the big, uh, one of the big implications that comes out of life, the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. It is this union now that we have with Jesus Christ. Okay. Uh, and this evening, um, I, uh, this one, because, because of maybe the, some of the quotes, um, I don't want you to think that it's, it's really heady and, um, uh, beyond you because it's, it's not. I'm, I'm really going to break down something that you already know, um, and just add a little bit more, more substance to the things that we already know. But one of the great implications by believing upon Christ, um, is that first and foremost, we get to believe upon Christ. I mean, <clears throat> one of the great implications on, of believing upon Christ is first and foremost, we get to believe upon Christ. And what that simply means, or what I'm getting at, saints, is, um, by believing upon Christ, our minds are healed, not only to receive the light of grace, but also have a light, have a right to the light of glory. And what that simply means is this. By believing upon Jesus Christ, we receive the light of grace. That is, Jesus Christ shines his light into our hearts and minds so we believe, and we have a right to glory. And the light of glory has historically been referred to as the beatific vision. Okay, We have a reward now that awaits us. So this evening, I want to consider how Christ advances our nature with respect to knowledge. Christ, how does Jesus Christ advance our nature with respect to knowledge? And if you remember, uh, I've done a, a few where I talked about um, our nature being advanced in Jesus Christ. Okay, and I'll I'll explain more about again what that advancement means. But um, in salvation, simply put, we are saved by way of knowledge, um, and you can also add. And love as well, but I'm going to just for the sake of this evening um, stick to knowledge. What I want to do is I want us to consider Adam's knowledge pre-fall, then we'll consider Adam's knowledge post-fall, and then we're going to look at how Christ heals our mind in light of Adam's knowledge post-fall. <clears throat> Let's first look at Adam in the garden. Adam in the garden. We read in Genesis 1:27 these words: "So God created man in His own image. In the image of God He created him." Male and female, he created them. We read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, the apex of God's creation. The apex of God's creation is Adam and Eve. It is humans, we can say. And the reason why humans are the apex of God's creation is because human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. Again, the reason why humans are the apex of God's creation is because human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. But saints, what makes, uh, what is unique, I should say, about man? What sets man apart from 
animals, think of an animal, and plants, okay? What does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God? Well, there's much that we can say what makes us unique. But the answer is what makes us unique is that humans are able to think and to will. Apart from your dog and apart from a flower, animal, um, um, we as humans have the ability to think and to will. In other words, humans are able to know and to love. To know and to love. That is what makes us unique saints, is that humans are able to use reason, we're able to use logic in a way that creation cannot. So you can think in a way that your pet dog cannot think. And you can think in a way and rather and also will and love in a way that your dog, cat, or even a plant cannot. That's what makes you unique. And so if you were to if you're writing notes, what makes us unique? For the sake of argument, let's just say knowledge. We're able to think and to reason. And wouldn't we consider um Adam in the Garden of Eden? We can say that when when, when Adam was created we can say inherent in man is man's ability and desire to know. Inherent in man is man's ability and desire to know. I mean, again, if that's what makes us unique, uh, then we have to have something that corresponds to that, and that is uh, knowledge. So when we consider Adam in the garden, Adam was created with knowledge. So Adam was created with knowledge. Now we have to ask, uh, what kind of knowledge did Adam was created with? What did Adam know? Did Adam know all things? Such as, did Adam know how to fix an engine? Did Adam know how to make a sandwich? What type of knowledge? What did he know? What did Adam know in the garden? Well, the answer is twofold. Adam had both a natural theology and a supernatural theology. In other words, Adam not only knew that God existed, which pertains to natural theology, it was natural for him to know that God existed okay it was natural to know uh, to adam to know things about god i mean mind you this is natural to everyone from one at the moment of conception to one that's a hundred and you know ten years old um everyone knows that god exists via nature okay that is that is given with nature but adam knew god as also as trinity which pertains to supernatural theology. So Adam knew uh, not only what the natural man knows, so Adam knows that God exists, but also Adam knew and believed what the believer knows. He knew God as one, as the cause of all things, but also he knew God as Trinity. Okay, But Adam did not have what's called beatific knowledge. He didn't have beatific knowledge. Although he knew God as Trinity, although he knew that God existed, Adam's knowledge wasn't perfect. It wasn't perfect. For there was still another level of his knowledge of God that he could have obtained. And this is what Adam was working towards in the Garden of Eden. If Adam would have obeyed the stipulations of the covenant that God imposed upon him, then his reward would have been what's called an advancement of his nature. So Adam is working towards something. And the primary thing of what Adam's working towards is not necessarily, he's not working towards a trophy. He's not working towards a medal. He's not working towards, 
I don't know, a dinner? (laughs) But he's working towards the betterment of his being. He's working towards what's called an advancement of who he is. Okay? Meaning Adam, he wouldn't have become a superhuman. He wouldn't have been, you know, a transformer turned into something that's crazy. But rather, he would have been perfected in all of his gifts. So, for example, if Adam would have obeyed God, he would have received incorruptibility. Incorruptibility. Meaning that his body would have never undergone corruption. His body would have never undergone corruption, decay. He would have received and shared in God's rest. No more tending to the garden. But he also would have received the beatific vision. And this vision is the immediate vision of God that heightens and perfects his knowledge of God, but also his love for God. So in the beatific vision, Adam would have received God as his blessedness and eternal joy. He would have been, uh, there would have been a heightened communion bond. I mean, Adam and, e- and Adam and God were in communion, but this communion would have been heightened if Adam would have obeyed. So, regard to, with regard to knowledge, we can say Adam was created to know God, but not know God merely as creator, triune, but he was to know God more intimately. We can say that man, therefore, is made to know God. Man's um, final destiny, uh, destiny is to know God and to enjoy God, which is the beatific vision. But saints, we know that Adam did not obtain God as his blessedness and reward. Adam was not advanced in nature. So what went wrong? Gen- <coughs> Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 4 through 7 say this. And the serpent says to the woman, You certainly will not die. For God knows that on the day that you eat of it, from, uh, eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a light to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband and uh, with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Okay, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves waist coverings. Now, friends, what I want you to see is what Satan tempted Adam and Eve with was what's called deification. Deification, okay? That is, Satan tempted Adam and Eve with the possibility of being like God. Being like God. And how would Adam and Eve reach this desire? How would Adam and Eve reach being like God? How would Adam and Eve be deified? By way of knowledge. By way of knowledge. Again, Satan says, you certainly will not die, for God knows that on the day you eat, uh, you eat, uh, from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God. Now, how would they be like God? Knowing good and evil. Knowledge, then, is what brings one to be like God. Knowing good and evil. So the lure of Satan's temptation was that Adam and Eve would gain knowledge And by gaining this knowledge, they will be like God. 
We can say that the first sin uh, was desiring knowledge, but desiring knowledge in a sinful way, because, of course, desiring knowledge is not a sinful in itself, but it's desiring knowledge by going your own route. So when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, it actually did, uh, <coughs> when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, it actually did the opposite of what he was tempted with. You guys ever noticed that before? Adam and Eve's mind, they, it, it was advanced. That is, they, they, they understood good and evil, but in that advancement, it was darkened. It was darkened. So Adam and Eve, although their minds were advanced, it wasn't advanced onto glory, but it was darkened. <clears throat> and this darkening of the mind, of course, extends to us. And this is what the Bible teaches us, does it not? Thank you, Ray. Teaches us. <clears throat> Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So you see, the hardness of heart is a direct result of their ignorance and the darkening of their understanding. Man's mind now is dark because of Adam. Romans 1, verse 21, 22. For though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their reasoning, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So you see what happened when Adam sinned was not only are we inclined to sin and action, but our knowledge of God is darkened. We are ignorant of God's, uh, of God. In the fall, we have lost our supernatural theology of God. That is, we don't know God as Trinity, but also we, the knowledge of, of God that we have natural to us is, ex, uh, 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 suppressed. It's suppressed. Consider the words of Paul again. Um, he says in verse 21 of Romans 1, For even though uh, they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. So you see how man still holds on to the natural knowledge of God, but it's suppressed because they do not honor God. Then they say, he says in verse 28, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave, God gave them over to a depraved mind. To do those things that are not proper. So as we close this point in summary, because of sin, we don't know God in the way that he desires us to know him. And what we need in order for us to be saved is for our minds to be healed and be enlightened by the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ. Which leads to our second point, and that is the word sent to heal. The word sent to heal. <clears throat> One of the great questions, if you were to read um, any books on Christology is the question of why did the Father send His Son? In other words, what was the motivation of the Incarnation? Why? Why did He send His Son? And we read in Westminster Larger Catechism, question 39 this. Question, why was it requisite that the meteor should be man? In other words, why did God send His Son? Answer, it was requisite that the meteor should be man, that He might advance our nature. So, according to, I mean, this is a Reformed document, one of the chief motivations for the sending of the Son was so that we, as fallen humans, would be advanced in our nature. 
so that we may no longer be fallen, <laughs> but where we can be saints, royal ones, sons of God. That is why, <clears throat> that is why the eternal Son came down from heaven. Now notice, um, uh, one of the motivations, again, for the incarnation was for God to advance our nature. And when we say advance our nature, we're saying that it was the will of God to send His Son so that man may move beyond their natural state to a state of grace and ultimately glory. That's ultimately what advancing our nature means. That we move from our natural state to a state of grace and then ultimately to a state of glory. And one of the ways our nature is advanced is by way of knowledge. So you say, how is our nature advanced? First and foremost, by way of knowledge. Colossians 3.10 says, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created it. John Gill, commenting on Colossians 3.10 says, until a man becomes a new creature, he neither knows nor is he capable of knowing the things of the Spirit of God. Again, um, in other words, until... God gives you grace to believe. You cannot know God the way that God has desired for you to know him. You can know God via nature. That is, you can look out and you can you know, look at the cosmos and come to a conclusion that there is a God. But you don't know uh, God in the way that he has described fully in the word of God. So Gil goes on to say, so that this new man or principle of grace begins with spiritual knowledge. So again, Gil's saying, your new, uh, you being a new creation of Christ begins with knowledge. It begins with knowledge. And is formed in order to it. And its increase lies in it. So how does Christ advance our nature? Uh, specifically with knowledge. First, in two ways. <clears throat> Christ advances our knowledge first in what the eternal son assumes. First in what the eternal son assumes. When the eternal son assumes a human nature... So when God becomes man, he assumes all of what it means to be human in order to heal every part of what it means to be human. That is a, that is a classic, patristic, that is, church father um, um, way of thinking about the incarnation. Again, Jesus Christ, the eternal son, assumes all of what it means to be human in order to heal every part of what it means to be human. Now, this was a big controversy in the early church, specifically with a man named Apollinarius. Now, Apollinarius believed that when the eternal son assumed a human nature, so when God became man, he did not assume a human mind. So if you were to ask Apollinarius, Apollinarius, what did God assume? Well, he assumed a body, okay, but did he assume a human mind? No, he did not assume a human mind. One theologian says, for Apollinarius, <clears throat> if the Logos, which is the eternal son, had assumed a human mind, he would be full of sinful thoughts, which the human mind is subject to. So in Apollinarius' thinking, um, he's saying that God cannot assume a human mind because the human mind is full with sin. And in many ways, the human mind would sort of... Um, enable Christ to sin. This is why the word did not assume a human mind, which is subject to change and the captive, uh, captive of, of, of filthy thoughts, but was a divine and heavenly mutable mind. So 
Jesus Christ, if you were looking at him, he looked like a man, but rather, I mean, everything about him is man other than his mind. He had a divine mind. Okay. So what did the early church do to combat this heresy? Well, answer the great Cappadocian Gregory of Nazianzus. Gregory of Nazianzus, in response to Apollinaris, says this, and this is, this is wonderful, okay? If only half Adam fell, then that which Christ assumes and saves may also be half also. But if the whole of his nature fell, it must be united to the whole nature of him that was begotten. So essentially what Nazianzus is saying is, if only Adam fell, and if it was only half of uh, the humanity of Adam that fell, then Christ should only take on half of humanity. But what he's saying is, all of Adam fell. His mind, his, his will, everything about him fell. So it must be united to the whole nature of him that was begotten. And so be saved as a whole. Let them not then begrudge us our complete salvation, or clothe the Savior only with bones and nerves, and the portrait of humanity. <laughs> That's a wonderful way of dashing to pieces your uh, your enemy, right? <clears throat> and then he goes on to say this famous Christological line, what has not been assumed has not been healed. What the eternal Son does not assume, he does not heal. So if Christ does not assume a human mind, the human mind is not healed. If he does not assume a human will, the human will is not healed. What Christ has not assumed, he has not healed nor perfected. In order for the whole me to be redeemed, the whole me must be assumed. All of my humanity, which includes the human mind. Another church father, John Damascus, or John Damascene, makes this point clear. He says, moreover, no one will deny that man is a rational intellectual animal. So what he's saying is, no one's going to deny that man um, has the ability to, to think and to reason. How then did he become man if he assumed a soulless body or a soulless mind? So he's really speaking to the Apollinarian controversy. For that sort of thing is no man. So he's saying if, if Christ, the eternal son, assumed all of what it means to be human other than a human mind, then that's no man. And so he assumes the whole man who had fallen through weakness and his most noble part. That's another way of saying the mind. In order that he might grace the whole with salvation. So he assumes the whole of you, saint, in order to grace the whole of you with salvation. In order to advance your nature. You see, because everything that happens to us first and foremost, happens to the humanity of Christ. <clears throat> so we see from the testimony of the church fathers that in the incarnation, the eternal son assumes all of humanity to heal every part of humanity. We can also say that when the eternal son assumes a human mind, he's also assuming a human mind in order to heal the darkness of our mind. So at the moment of conception in the Blessed Virgin uh, uh, Mary's womb, right, um, the Holy Spirit takes her humanity, her will, her mind, everything, and then sanctifies it, advances it at the moment of conception. Thereby, our our mind is advanced. And it is, in many ways, um, uh, getting ready for grace and glory. Which leads to the second way Jesus heals our mind, and that is by revealing to us the Father. 
when we read the Gospels, specifically the Gospel of John, you'll notice how many times Jesus speaks of knowledge. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me, comes to the Father except through me. Christ is the way to arrive at the knowledge of the truth, for he is truth himself. Matthew eleven twenty seven. all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. This revealing is not merely just a, a picture, <laughs> but it's, 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 a, it's a teaching, right? Jesus Christ came into the world to be a revealer. He was to reveal the mysteries of God's will, and by doing so, he would enlighten the minds of his people. This is why Christ many times in the gospel is described as light. I mean, if you read the gospel of John, it's everywhere. He's described as the light that comes in the world. Light, light, light. Jesus, uh, John says in uh, chap, uh, chapter 1, verse 9, in John chapter 1, verse 9, this was the true light that coming into the world enlightens every person. Thomas Aquinas says concerning this verse, it is as though he were saying, man needs to be enlightened because he is coming into this world which is darkened by perversity and defects and is full of ignorance. So Jesus is referred to as light because of the darkness of our minds. And as I've already said, man is created to know, specifically to know and enjoy God, but we are unable to know God the way that he has desired us to know him. So the eternal son comes down from heaven and as the true light, he enlightens our minds by revealing to us the Father so that we may believe and have eternal life. This is what he says, Jesus says in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is eternal life? To know the Father through the incarnation of the Son, Jesus Christ. John Gill says concerning this verse, the knowledge of God here is spoken of is not the knowledge of him by the light of nature. So what he's saying is, the knowledge of God here is not the knowledge that we have by observing the cosmos and saying that there is a God. That's not the knowledge that saves. Natural theology does not save. It's not intended to save. The works of creation. For a man may know God in this sense and not know him in Christ. But this is to be understood of an evangelic knowledge of God as the God and Father of Christ. That is to say, Jesus Christ reveals God who is not just creator, but who is a heavenly father. And it's important to note about the ministry of Christ that Jesus Christ, as is the supreme revealer of God, he doesn't just give us data about God. He's not just giving us um, these, these, these wonderful um, ideas and thoughts about God. Jesus not only tells us about the Father, but also he invites us to be sons and daughters of the Father. That's the great thing about the way in which he reveals. He reveals not as a, as a teacher in a, in a class. He doesn't just give us data and a lecture, but rather he invites us. He shows us the Father. He shows us who the Father is. So to summarize this point, Jesus Christ heals the darkness of our mind in two ways. First, by assuming a human mind. Jesus advances our own mind, for his mind is sanctified. And I had this, I had this also a long thing of 
the Christ knowledge as man, which is also another way in which he advances our knowledge. And secondly, he reveals to us the Father and the mysteries of salvation. And so illumines our minds to the knowledge of God. So we can say the incarnation, God becoming man, is the remedy for the darkness and ignorance that results from sin. The word taking on human flesh is a fitting remedy to heal our ignorance of God, for Jesus Christ is the eternal word. He is the eternal word, that is, he is the word that comes forth from the Father, from the intellect of the Father. But also, we can say that as the word that comes forth from the Father, he knows the very secrets of the Father. And how do you know one secret? If I was to tell you a secret, how do I communicate that secret to you? By way of words. So Jesus Christ is the perfect, fitting one to come and reveal to us the very secrets and the mysteries of salvation. So saints, in salvation then, how does it relate to us? Which the whole, all this relates to us. But how, how did you believe upon Christ? When God gives us grace to believe, the grace that he gives comes down to us and touches us at the highest point of our humanity, which is our mind. Which is our mind. This is why um, there is a battle between your mind and your passions. It touches the mind first, but also touches the will as well. But with respect to just our conversation and lesson this evening, it touches the mind. So grace comes to our darkened minds, and when we hear the gospel of Christ, it is light coming forth into the very darkness of our minds. So when you think of, you know, when you go home this, this evening and you go into your house and it's dark, when you turn on the light, that is very similar to how your mind is enlightened by the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Christ comes into the mind and God elevates your mind. So you believe truths that are foreign to you and you love one who is your enemy. So how is our nature advanced? Well, you believe things that you didn't used to believe that are so foreign to you. Like what? That I'm a sinner in Adam and I need to be saved in Christ. That is very foreign to you. In fact, you used to reject that truth. But also you love one who is your enemy. You love God above all else. That is how Christ and God advances our minds. Saints, you sitting here this evening is a testimony of your mind already being advanced. If you are a believer in Christ, we can now say because of this, we can repeat the words of the psalmist in Psalm 36, 9. For the foundation of life is with you in your light. We see light. That is to say. In the Holy Spirit, we see the light of the Son who shows to us the light of the Father. Or we can say, like St. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts and uh, hearts to give the light of knowledge of glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So saints, as we close, <clears throat> as it was said this morning, God has shown his light in our hearts. And you may not know every Bible verse by heart. 
You may not know the answer to every theological question, but because God has enlightened your mind and advanced you to know supernatural truths, you can say like Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, 4, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. If you can repeat that, saints, and if you can say amen in your heart and your minds and with your lips, then you have the mind of Christ. This knowledge, of course, saints, is not to be uh, meant to puff us up. We're not to live in our ivory towers. We're not to keep it to ourselves. But knowledge is also to be accompanied with the will. Knowledge is always to be accompanied with love, with adoration. So, as the writers of the Leiden Synopsis says, theology consists not of bare and empty theory, but of a practical science that powerfully stirs the human will and all the emotions of the heart to worship God and to cherish one's neighbor. So saints, the knowledge that you have, the enlightened mind that you have now because of Christ, let us now, let it cultivate you and, 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 and really motivate you rather uh, to love God and love neighbor as yourself. Let's pray.